0: 6. The prompt and energetic mind of the daring ranger. In a minute's time he had organized a line of soldiers, leading through a postern gate to the river, and each one bearing a bucket. The energetic major mounted a ladder, received the water as it came, and poured it into the flaming building. The heat was intense, the smoke suffocating, so near were the flames that a pair of thick mittens were quickly burned from his hands. Calling for another pair, he dipped them into the water and continued his work. Come down cried Colonel Heavyland. It is too dangerous there. We must try other means. There are no means but to fight the enemy inch by inch, replied Putnam. A moment's yielding on our part may prove fatal. His cool Kennedy gave new courage to the colonel, who exclaimed, as he urged the others to a renewed exertions. If we must be blown up, we will all go together. Despite Putnam's heroic efforts, the flames spread. Soon the whole barracks were enveloped and lurid tongues of fire began to shoot out alarmingly towards the magazine. Putnam now descended, took his station between the two buildings, and continued his active service, his energy and audacity giving new life and activity to officers and men. The outside planks of the magazine caught. They were consumed. Only a thin timber partition remained between the flames and fifteen tons of powder. This, too, was charred and smoking. Destruction seemed inevitable. The consternation was extreme but there, in the scorching heat of the flames, covered with falling cinders, threatened with instant death, stood the undaunted putnam, still pouring water on the smoking timbers, still calling to the men to keep steadily to their work, and thus he continued till the rafters of the barracks fell in the heat decreased, and the safety of the magazine was ensured, for an hour and a half he had fought the flames, his hands, face, almost his whole body, were scorched and blistered, When he pulled off his second pair of mittens the skin came with them, several weeks passed before he recovered from the effects of his hard battle with fire, but he had the reward of success, and the earnest thanks and kind attentions of officers and men alike, who felt that to him alone they out the safety of the fort, and the escape of many, if not all, of the garrison from destruction, among Putnam's many adventures, there are two others which have often been told, but are worthy of repetition. On one occasion he was surprised by a large party of Indians, when with a few men in a boat at the head of the rapids of the Hudson, at Fort Miller. It was a frightfully perilous situation. To stay where he was, was to be slaughtered, to attempt crossing the stream would bring him under the Indian fire, to go down the falls promised instant death. Which expedient should he adopt? He chose the latter, preferring to risk death from water rather than from tomahawk or bullet. The boat was pushed from the shore and exposed to the full force of the current. In a minute or two it had swept beyond the range of the Indian weapons, but death seemed inevitable. The water rushed on in foaming torrents, whirling round rocks, sweeping over shelves, pouring down in abrupt falls, shooting onward with the wildest fury. It seemed as if only a miracle could save the voyagers. Yet with unyielding coolness Putnam grasped the helm, while his keen eye scanned the peril ahead. His quick hand met every danger as it came incessantly the course of the boat was changed, to avoid the protruding rocks, here it was tossed on the billows, there it shot down inclined reaches, now it seemed plunging into a boiling eddy, now it whirled round a threatening obstacle, like a leaf in the tempest it was borne onward, and at length, to the amazement of its inmates themselves, and the astoundment of the Indians, it floated safely on the smooth waters below, after a passage of peril such as have rarely been dared, The savages gave up the chase. A man who could safely run those rapids seemed to them to bear a charmed life. The other story mentioned is one indicative of Putnam's wit and readiness. The army was now encamped in the forest, in a locality to the eastward of Lake George. While here, the Indians prowled through the woods around it, committing depredations here and there, picking off sentinels, and doing other mischief. They seemed to have impunity in this work, and defied the utmost efforts at discovery one outpost in particular was the seat of a dread mystery, night after night the sentinel at this post disappeared, and was not heard of again, some of the bravest men of the army were selected to occupy the post, with orders, if they should hear any noise, to call out, who goes there, three times, and if no answer came, to fire, yet the mysterious disappearances continued, until the men refused to accept so dangerous a post, the commander was about to draw a sentinel by lot, When Major Putnam solved the difficulty by offering to stand guard for the coming night, the puzzled commander promptly accepted his offer, instructing him, as he had done the others, if you hear any sound from without the lines, you will call who goes there, three times, and then, if no answer be given, fire. Putnam promised to obey, and marched to his post. Here he examined the surrounding locality with the utmost care, fixed in his mind the position of every point in the neighborhood. Saw that his musket was in good order, and began his monotonous tramp, backward and forward. For several hours all remained silent, save for the ordinary noises of the woodland. At length, near midnight, a slight rustling sound met his keen ears. He listened intently. Some animal appeared to be stealthily approaching. Then there came a crackling sound, as of a hog munching acorns. Putnam's previous observation of the locality enabled him to judge very closely the position of this creature. And he was too familiar with Indian artifices, and too sensible of the danger of his position, to let even a dog pass unchallenged. Raising his musket to his shoulder, and taking deliberate aim at the spot indicated, he called out, in strict obedience to orders, who goes there, three times, and instantly pulled the trigger. A loud groaning and struggling noise followed. Putnam quickly reloaded and ran forward to the spot. Here he found what seemed a large bear, struggling in the agony of death but the moment's observation showed the wide-awake sentinel that the seeming bear was really a gigantic Indian, enclosed in a bear skin, in which, disguised, he had been able to approach and shoot the preceding sentinels. Putnam had solved the mystery of the solitary post. The sentinels on that outpost ceased, from that moment, to be disturbed. Numerous other adventures of Major Putnam, and encounters with the Indians and the French Rangers, might be recounted but we must content ourselves with the narrative of one which ended in the captivity of our hero, and his very narrow escape from death in more than one form. As an illustration of the barbarity of Indian warfare it cannot but prove of interest. It was the month of August, 1758. A train of baggage wagons had been cut off by the enemy's rangers. Majors Putnam and Rogers, with 800 men, were dispatched to intercept the foe, retake the spoils, and punish them for their daring. The effort proved fruitless. The enemy had taken to their canoes and escaped before their pursuers could overtake them. Failing in this expedition, they camped out on Wood Creek and South Bay, with the hope of cutting off some straggling party of the enemy. Here they were discovered by French scouts, and, having reason to fear an attack in force, it was deemed most prudent to return to headquarters at Fort Edward. The route proved difficult. It lay through dense forest, impeded by fallen trees and thick undergrowth. They were obliged to advance in Indian file, cutting a path as they went. One night came they encamped on the bank of Clear River. The next morning, while the others were preparing to resume the march, Major Rogers, with a foolhardy imprudence that was little less than criminal in their situation, amused himself by a trial of skill with a British officer in firing at a mark. The result was almost fatal. Molin, the celebrated French partisan, had hastily left Ticonderoga with 500 men. On hearing of the presence of the scouting party of provincials, and was now near at hand, the sound of the muskets gave him exact information as to the position of their camp. Hastening forward, he laid an ambuscade on the line of march of his foes, and awaited their approach. Onward through the thicket came the unsuspecting provincials. They had advanced a mile, and were on the point of emerging from the dense growth into the more open forest, when yells broke from the bushes on both sides of their path and a shower of bullets was poured into the advance ranks. Putnam, who led the van, quickly bade his men to return the fire, and passed the word back for the other divisions to hasten up. The fight soon became a hand-to-hand one. The creek was close by, but it could not be crossed in the face of the enemy, and Putnam bade his men to hold their ground. A sharp fight ensued, now in the open, now from behind trees. In Indian fashion, Putnam had discharged his piece several times. And once more pulled trigger, with the muzzle against the breast of a powerful Indian. His piece missed fire. Instantly the warrior dashed forward, tomahawk in hand, and by threat of death compelled his antagonist to surrender. Putnam was immediately disarmed and bound to a tree, and his captor returned to the fight. The battle continued, one party after the other being forced back. In the end, the movements of the struggling foes were such as to bring the tree to which Putnam was bound directly between their lines. He was like a target for both parties, balls flew past him from either side, many of them struck the tree, while his coat was pierced by more than one bullet, so obstinate was the contest that for an hour the battle raged about him, his peril continuing extreme, nor was this his only danger, during the heat of the conflict a young Indian hurled a tomahawk several times at his head, out of mischief more than malice but with such skillful aim that the keen weapon more than once grazed his skin and buried its edge in the tree beside his head. With still greater malice, a French officer of low grade leveled his musket at the prisoner's breast and attempted to discharge it. Fortunately for Putnam it missed fire. The prisoner vainly solicited more merciful treatment. The heartless villain thrust the muzzle of his gun violently against the captive's ribs, and in the end gave him a painful blow on the jaw with the butt end of his piece. The battle ended at length in the triumph of the provincials, they drove the French from the field, but they failed to rescue Putnam, before retiring, the Indian who had made him captive attacked tied him, and forced him to accompany the retreating party, when a safe distance had been reached, the prisoner was deprived of his coat, vest, shoes, and stockings, his shoulders were loaded with the packs of the wounded, and his wrists were tied behind him as tightly as they could be drawn. In this painful condition he was forced to walk four miles through the woodland paths, until the party halted to arrest. rest. By this time his hands were so swollen from the tightness of the cord that the pain was unbearable, while his feet bled freely from their many scratches. Exhausted with his burden and wild with torment, he asked the interpreter to beg the Indians either to loose his hands or knock him on the head, and end his torture at once. His appeal was heard by a French officer who immediately order his hands to be unbound and some of his burden to be removed, shortly afterwards the Indian who had captured him, and who had been absent with the wounded, came up and expressed great indignation at his treatment, he gave him a pair of moccasins, and seemed kindly disposed towards him, and fortunately for the captive, this kindly savage was obliged to resume his duty with the wounded, leaving Putnam with the other Indians, some 200 in number. Who marched in advance of the French contingent of the party towards the selected camping place. On the way their barbarity to their helpless prisoner continued, culminating in a blow with a tomahawk, which made a deep wound in his left cheek. This cruel treatment was but preliminary to a more fatal purpose. It was their intention to burn their captive alive. No sooner had they reached their camping ground than they led him into the forest depths, stripped him of his clothes, bound him to a tree, and heaped dry fuel in a circle round him. While thus engaged they filled the air with the most fearful sounds to which their throats could give vent, a pandemonium of ear-piercing yells and screams, the pile prepared, it was set on fire, the flames spread rapidly through the dry brush, but by a chance that seemed providential, at that moment a sudden shower sent its raindrops through the foliage, extinguished the increasing fire, and dampened the fuel. No sooner was the rain over than the yelling savages applied their torches again to the funeral pile of their living victim, the dampness checked their efforts for a time, but at length the flames caught, and a crimson glow slowly made its way round the circle of fuel, the captive soon felt the scorching heat, he was tied in such a way that he could move his body, and he involuntarily shifted his position to escape the pain, an evidence of nervousness that afforded the highest delight to his tormentors who expressed their exultation in yells, dances, and wild gesticulations, the last hour of the brave soldier seemed at hand, he strove to bring resolution to his aid, and to fix his thoughts on a happier state of existence beyond the surf, the contemplation of which might aid him to bear without flinching, a short period of excruciating pain, at this critical moment, when death in its most horrid form stared him in the face, relief came, a French officer, who had been told of what was in progress, suddenly bounded through the savage band, kicked the blazing brands to a right and left, and with a stroke of his knife released the imperiled captive. It was Molin himself. An Indian who retained some instincts of humanity had informed him of what was on foot. The French commander reprimanded his barbarian associates severely, and led the prisoner away, keeping him by his side until he was able to transfer him to the care of the gigantic Indian who had captured him. The savage seemed to regard him with feelings of kindness. He offered him some biscuits, but finding that the wound in his cheek and the blow he had received on the jaw prevented him from chewing, he soaked them in water till they could be swallowed easily. Yet, despite his kindness, he took extraordinary care that his prisoner should not escape. When the camp was made, he forced the captive to lie on the ground, stretched each arm at full length, and bound it to a young tree, and fastened his legs in the same manner. Then a number of long and slender poles were cut and laid across his body from head to foot, on the ends of which lay several of the Indians. Under such circumstances escape could not even be thought of, nor was a moment's comfort possible. The night seemed infinitely extended. The only relief that came to the prisoner, as he himself relates, being the reflection of what a ludicrous subject the group, of which he was the central figure, would have made for a painter. The next day he was given a blanket and moccasins, and allowed to march without being loaded with packs. A little bear's meat was furnished him, whose juice he was able to suck. That night the party reached Ticonderoga, where he was placed in charge of a French guard, and his sufferings came to an end. The savages manifested their chagrin at his escape by insulting grimaces and threatening gestures, but were not allowed to offer him any further indignity or violence. After an examination by the Marquis de Montcalm, who was in command at Ticonderoga, he was sent to Montreal under charge of a French officer, who treated him in a humane manner. Major Putnam was a frightful object on reaching Montreal. The little clothing allowed him being miserably dirty and ragged, his beard and hair dishevelled, his legs torn by thorns and briars, his face gashed, blood-stained and swollen. Colonel Schuyler, a prisoner there, beheld his plight with deep commiseration, supplied him with clothing and money, and did his utmost to alleviate his condition. When shortly afterwards an exchange of prisoners was being made, in which Colonel Schuyler was to be included, he, fearing that Putnam would be indefinitely held should his importance as a partisan leader become known, used a skillful artifice to obtain his release. Speaking to the governor with great politeness and seeming indifference of purpose, he remarked, There is an old man here who is a provincial major. He is very desirous to be at home with his wife and children. He can do no good here, nor anywhere else. I believe Your Excellency had better keep some of the young men, who had no wives or children to care for, and let this old fellow go home with me. His artifice was effective, Putnam was released, and left Montreal in company with his generous friend. He took further part in the war, at the end of which, at the Indian village of Cochuauga, near Montreal, he met again the Indian whose prisoner he had been. The kindly savage was delighted to see him again and entertained him with all the friendship and hospitality at his command. At a later date, when Putnam took part in the Pontiac War, he met again the sole chief, who was now an ally of the English, and who marched side by side with his former prisoner to do battle with the ancient enemies of his tribe. A gallant defense, the relations between the Indians and the European colonists of America were, during nearly the whole colonial and much of the subsequent period, what we now suggestively entitle, strained, There were incessant aggressions of the colonists, incessant reprisals by the aborigines, while the warring whites of America never hesitated to use these savage auxiliaries in their struggles for territory and power. The history of this country is filled with details of Indian assaults on forts and settlements, ambushes, massacres, torturings, and acts of duplicity and ferocity innumerable. Yet every instance of Indian hostility has ended in the triumph of the whites the advance of the army of colonization a step further, and the gradual subjugation of American savagery, anime and inanimate, to the beneficent influences of civilization, these Indian doings are frequently sickening in their details, the story of America cannot be told without them, yet they are of one family, and largely of one species, and an example or two will serve for the whole, in our next tale the story of an Indian assault on the Daniel Boone stronghold in Kentucky will be told, We purpose now to give the interesting details of an attack on Fort Henry, a small frontier work near where Wheeling now stands. This attack was the work of Simon Gertie, one of the most detestable characters that the drama of American history ever brought upon the stage. He was the offspring of crime, his parents being irredeemably besotted and vicious, of their four sons, two, who were taken prisoner by the Indian at Braddock's defeat, developed into monsters of wickedness. James was adopted by the Delawares, and became the fiercest savage of the tribe. Simon grew into a great hunter among the Senecas, and fortunately a hunter of helpless human beings as much as of game, and for twenty years his name was a terror in every white household of the Ohio country. He is spoken of as honest. It was his one virtue, the sole redeeming leaven in a life of vice, savagery, and cruelty. In the summer of 1777 this evil product of frontier life collected a force of 400 Indians for an assault on the white his place of rendezvous was Sandusky, his ostensible purpose to cross the Ohio and attack the Kentucky frontier settlements, on reaching the river, however, he suddenly turned up its course, and made all haste towards Fort Henry, then garrisoned by Colonel Shepard, with about 40 men, the movements of Gertie were known, and alarm as to their purpose was widely felt, Shepard had his scouts out, but the shrewd renegade managed to deceive them, and to appear before Fort Henry almost unannounced, Happily, the coming of the storm of savagery was discovered in time enough to permit the inhabitants of Wheeling, then composed of some twenty-five log huts, to fly for refuge to the fort. A reconnoitering party had been sent out under Captain Mason. These were ambushed by the cunning leader of the Indians, and more than half of them fell victims to the rifle and the tomahawk, their perilous position being perceived, a party of twelve more, under Captain Ogle, sullied to their rescue. They found themselves overwhelmingly outnumbered, and eight of the twelve fell. These towards events frightfully reduced the garrison. Of the original forty only twelve remained, some of them little more than boys. Within the fort were this little garrison and the women and children of the settlement. Outside raged four hundred savage warriors. Under a skillful commander, it seemed absolute madness to attempt a defense. Yet Colonel Shepard was not one of the men who lightly surrender. Death by the rifle was, in his view better than death at the stake, with him were two men, Ebenezer and Silas Zane, of his own caliber, while the whole garrison was made up of hearts of oak, as for the women in the fort, though they were of little use in the fight, they could lend their aid in casting bullets, making cartridges, and loading rifles, among them was one, Elizabeth Zane, sister of the two men named, who was to perform a far more important service, she had just returned from school in Philadelphia knew little of the horrors of border warfare, but had in her the same indomitable spirit that distinguished her brothers, a woman she was of heroic mold, as the events will prove, it was in the early morning of September 26th that Gertie appeared before the fort, a brief period sufficed, in the manner related, to reduce the garrison to a mere handful, sure now of success, Gertie advanced towards the palisades with a white flag, and demanded an unconditional surrender, Colonel Shepard was ready with his answer, He had already felt the pulse of his men, and found that it beat with the same high spirit as his own. He mounted upon the ramparts, stern and inflexible, and hurled back his reply. This fort shall never be surrendered to you, nor to any other man, while there is an American left to defend it. Are you mad, man? Cried Gertie. Do you know our force? Do you know your own? Resistance is folly. I know you, Simon Gertie. That is enough to know. You had my answer. In a rage, Gertie hurled back a volley of dark threats, then turned away, and ordered an instant attack, and luckily for the garrison, some of the deserted log huts were sufficiently near to shelter the Indians, and enable them to assault the fort undercover. They swarmed into these houses, and for six hours kept up an incessant fire on the works, wasting their bullets, as it proved, for none of them did harm to fort or man. As for the defenders, they had no ammunition to waste but most of them were sharpshooters, and they took good care that every bullet should tell. Nearly every report from behind the walls told a story of wound or death. As good fortune willed, the savages had no artillery, and were little disposed to hazard their dusky skins in an assault in force on the well-defended walls. That midday the attack temporarily ceased. The Indians withdrew to the base of Wheeling Hill, and the uproar of yells and musketry was replaced by a short season of quiet it was a fortunate reprieve for the whites, their powder was almost exhausted, had the assault continued for an hour longer their rifles must have ceased to reply, what was to be done, the Indians had withdrawn only for rest and food, they would soon be at their threatening work again, answer to them could not long be continued, when the fire from the fort ceased all would be over, the exultant savages would swarm over the undefended walls, and torture and outrage be the lot of all who were not fortunate enough to die in the assault, Ebenezer Zane looked wistfully at his house, 60 yards away, there is a keg of powder within those walls, he said, if we only had it here it might mean the difference between safety and death, a keg of powder, cried Colonel Shepard, we must have it, whatever the danger, he looked out, the Indians were within easy gunshot, whoever went for the powder ran the most imminent risk of death, the appearance of a man outside the gates would be the signal for a fierce fusillade. But we must have it, he repeated, and we can spare but one man for the task. Who shall it be? I cannot order anyone do such a duty. What man is ready to volunteer? Every man. Apparently, they all thronged forward, each eager for the perilous effort. They struggled, indeed, so long for the honor that there was danger of the Indians returning to the assault before the powder was obtained. At this interval a woman stepped forward. It was Elizabeth Zane. The fire of a noble purpose shone on her earnest face. But one man can be spared to go. You say, Colonel Sheppard, she remarked. In my opinion no man can be spared to go. Let me go for the powder. My life is of much less importance to the garrison than that of a man. Colonel Shepard looked at her with eyes of admiration, and then peremptorily refused her request. This was work for men, he said, not for women she should not sacrifice herself, it was everyone's duty to do their share, she replied, all were alike in danger, the walls were not half-manned, if she fell, the gap would be small, if a man fell, it would be large, so earnest were her solicitations, and so potent her arguments, that Colonel Sheppard finally yielded a reluctant consent, it was given none too soon, there was little time to spare, the gate was opened and the brave woman walked fearlessly out, she had not gone a step beyond the shelter of the fort before the Indians perceived her. Yet the suddenness of her appearance seemed to paralyze them. They stood and watched her movements, as she walked swiftly but steadily over the space leading to her brother's house. But not a gun was lifted nor a voice was raised. So far the expedient of sending a woman had proved unexpectedly successful. The savages gazed at her in blank amazement, wondering at her purpose. She entered the house. An anxious minute or two passed. The Indians still had not stirred. The eyes of the garrison were fixed with feverish anxiety on the door of that small hut. Then they were relieved by the reappearance of the devoted girl, now clasping the precious keg of powder in her arms. It was no time now to walk. As rapidly as she could run, with the weight in her arms, she sped over the open space. Speed was needed. The Indians had suddenly come to a realizing sense of the woman's purpose, and a volley of bullets swept the space over which she fled not one touched her, in a minute she had reached the fort, a shout of enthusiastic welcome went up, as the gate closed behind her, and she let fall the valuable prize from her innerved arms, every hand was stretched to grasp hers, and a chorus of praise and congratulation filled the air, we had a heroine among us, we will all be heroes, and conquer or die, was the universal thought, it was a true one, Elizabeth Zanes was one of those rare souls which seem sent on earth to make man proud of his race, that half-passed to the assailants returned to the attack, availing themselves, as before, of the cover of the huts. After a period spent in musketry, they made an assault in force on the gate of the fort, they were met by the concentrated fire of the garrison, six of them fell, the others fled back to their shelter, until dark the fusillade continued. After darkness had fallen the assailants tried a new device. Lacking artillery, they attempted to convert a hollow maple log into a cannon. They bound this as firmly as possible with chains. Then, with a ludicrous ignorance of what they were about, they loaded it to its muzzle with stones, pieces of iron, and other missiles. This done, they conveyed the impromptu cannon to a point within sixty yards of the fort, and attempted to discharge it against the gates. The result was what might have been anticipated. The log burst into a thousand pieces and sent splinters and projectiles hurtling among the curious crowd of dusky warriors. Several of them were killed, others were wounded, but the gates remained unharmed. This was more than the savages had counted on, and they ceased the assault for the night, no little discouraged by their lack of success. Meanwhile tidings of what Gertie and his horde were about had spread through the settlements, and relief parties were hastily formed. At four o'clock in the morning fourteen men arrived, under command of Colonel Swearingen, and fought their way into the fort without losing a man, That dawn a party of forty mounted men made their appearance, Major McCullough at their head, the men managed to enter the fort in safety, but the gallant Major, being unluckily separated from his band, was left alone outside, his was a terribly critical situation, fortunately, the Indians knew him for one of their most daring and skillful enemies, and hated him intensely, fortunately, we say, for to that he out his life, they could easily have killed him, but not a man of them would fire, such a foeman must not die so easily, he must end his life in flame and torture, such was their unspoken argument, and they dashed after him with yells of exultation, satisfied that they had one of their chief foes safely in their hands, it seemed so, indeed, the major was well mounted, but the swift Indian runners managed to surround him on three sides, and force him towards the river bluffs, from which escape seemed impossible. With redoubled shouts they closed in upon him. The Major, somewhat ignorant of the situation, pushed onward till he suddenly found himself on the brow of a precipice which descended at an almost vertical inclination for a hundred and fifty feet. Here was a frightful dilemma. To a right and left the Indian runners could be seen, their lines extending to the verge of the cliff. What was to be done? Surrender to the Indians. Attempt to dash through their line, or leak the cliff. Each way promised death but death by fall was preferable to death by torture, and a forlorn hope of life remained. The horse was a powerful one, and might make the